Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I'm your host, marketing manager, and for this episode, your narrator, Mackenzie. (laughs) And today, we are talking about one of my all-time favorite musicals, one that is very near and dear to my heart. It is Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. And the particular production we are discussing is the 2010 uh, Regent Park Open Air Theater production starring Hannah Waddingham as the witch. Uh, So to join me on my journey to get the cape as red as blood, the cow as white as milk, the hair as yellow as corn, and the the slipper as pure as gold, we have the wonderful Jillian Robinson. Um, so tell us, what is your experience with the woods? What's your favorite song? And what is your ensemble? And what is in your cup? Correct. Um, so great segue. So I yes. prepared a little a little something for the ensemble today. Mm-hmm. So here it goes. Mm-hmm. The cardigan is red as blood. The hair is yellow as corn. The ear is pure as gold. The cup as white as milk. So that's the ensemble. <laughs> and I just have some... Cinnamon-flavored black coffee this morning. Love it. uh, Fun little tidbit fact. Into the Woods was my first, like, commercialized musical I was ever in. I played Little Red back when I was 15. Um, So that's another reason why I wanted to wear my red cardigan today. Um, And by far, my favorite song is uh, Your Fault because Mm. it is the hardest song probably I will ever have to learn um, and execute in my career. And mm-hmm. it was just like such an awesome feeling and success mm-hmm. to to nail it um, mm-hmm. and connect with the other actors on the stage. To mm-hmm. you. I realized watching this production, it's funny how much I remember everyone else's <laughs> tracks more so than Little Reds because it, that <laughs> this musical kind of forces you to do that. So that would be my favorite song and how I kind of was introduced to the woods. Love that. Joining me also on our journey into the woods is someone who has a ton of experience in the woods. She and I actually connected over our love of this musical and her special connection to it. It is none other than my friend and returning guest, Mariana Galas. Hello, Mariana. Hi. Hi, Mac. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Ryan. So nice to meet you both and to see you again. Thank you for having me. Um, yes. Yeah, I have... Um, a very um, sentimental relationship with this show. Um, my mother, Lauren Mitchell, was part of the original Broadway company of Into the Woods. She played Lucinda, one of the stepsisters, and she also covered the baker's wife for a little bit. Uh, so she was in the original Broadway company, and then um, she and the man who's my stepfather, um, he produced the original um, production, which is how they met. And so then they together produced the 2002 Broadway revival, um, which I sort of think is very cute. <laughs> um, and but yes, I grew up with um, the Milky White from the original production in my house. Um, the harp, I had Jack's bag of gold around. Um, it didn't seem strange to me until I got older that that was sort of an unusual thing to have. Um, yes, yeah, so I grew up watching the um, original recording and going to rehearsals when I was very, very small and interrupting dance calls and different things. Um, and then I played the witch in Into the Woods Junior in my sixth grade production, Into the Woods 
So, you know. (laughs) 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 Love that. Love that. Oh, and what is your favorite song and what is in your cup? Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I'm still so new. Um, It's okay. uh, I love I Know Things Now. Mm. And in my cup is an iced Americano, oat milk, and lavender syrup. Love that. And also joining us is my friend, my co-producer, our resident dramaturg and literary manager, really the true narrator of Cup of Hemlock, Mr. Ryan Barakovich. Hello, Ryan. I, I don't know why you think I'm the narrator. You're always the one hosting me. But yes, hello. Hello, man. Hello, everyone. <laughs> nice to be here. Yes. What is your experience with the woods? Um, uh, admittedly less than the rest of y'all. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I will be uh, the recipient of a lot of, I guess, clunky exposition in this uh, uh, <laughs> this review. Uh, I saw the movie when it was new, like the 2014 Meryl Streep. Yes. 2014, I think that's correct. Yep, mm-hmm. 2014. Aside from that, I've never actually seen a production of this. I, I'm not like a big musical guy, as people have who watched some of our previous musical episodes will know. Um, I, I enjoy musicals. I enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not certainly don't have the encyclopedic knowledge that someone like Mac brings or the industry <laughs> knowledge that Mariana and Jill, you certainly bring here. So yeah, excited to be more of the novice on this one. But love yeah. that. Uh, what is in your cup and what is your ensemble today? And did you have a favorite song as, as, I, as a newcomer I, to the woods? Yeah, well, I'll start with the favorite song. Um, it's actually, uh, so it's in the finale, but not the whole finale, specifically the children will listen segment mm. of it. That that gave me the feels. And I think oh, yeah. one of the questions we have coming up will allow me to explain why a little more. So mm-hmm. I will refrain from getting into details. Okay. Um, I have in my The Cup Cup. Hey, The Cup, that's the show we're on right now. <laughs> I'm like theater. Uh, I have uh, coffee because we're filming this one pretty early in the morning. We are. <laughs> and um, my shirt, interesting because like in real life, IRL, it actually looks like the hair of the corn. But under this light on the Zoom window, I feel like it looks more like the milky white of the cow. So <laughs> take your pick which one it is. Love that. Love that. Uh, and I'm also drinking from my official The Cup Cup. Uh, it's an Earl Grey tea with some honey, and I'm wearing a green shirt in honor of the woods. So, there we go. Oh, and my favorite song is always It Takes Two, because mm. it is the one moment of happiness in this whole show. And if done correctly, it's a perfect relief from the contentious... Um, bickering that that the baker and his wife have had leading up to that point and we'll get into whether or not the production hit that mark to make that song extra sweet or if it kind of fell flat and was just a cute song so there we go we'll get into that but why don't we get into first of all uh which character do we feel was best performed and jill i'll let you start this one awesome um so i i kind of have two i have one that took the cake for me, but then mm-hmm. sort of like an honorable mention. Um, so Jenna Russell as our baker's wife mm. was my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think her comedic timing was spot on and she had such like a calm demeanor and mm-hmm. natural approach to the whole piece. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and just her maneuvering sort of being in an outdoor space and the scaffolding, mm-hmm. right? There wasn't a lot of like set uh, to lean back on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she was always taking up space and always her imagination was always seen mm-hmm. by the audience, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, her arc was really, really well executed. Mm-hmm. But really just like her comedic timing. I think that's the ticket, similar to what you were saying, Mac, of that song kind of mm-hmm. – Allowing laughter and happiness to flow in mm-hmm. to uh, amidst the darkness of the woods. Yes. Um, I think that through that character, we can get a lot of light and jolliness. Um, and that definitely definitely came through with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I would say mm-hmm. Jenna, Jenna Russell is the baker's wife. But then mm-hmm. um, uh, the witch was another honorable mention for me. Hannah um, Waddingham. Hannah Waddingham, yes. Um yeah, she just had had the grounding and the strength mm-hmm. um, and the, the ferocious demeanor that mm-hmm. the witch calls for. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like, I felt bad for her, right? It, the, the, that character to me is always so interesting to sew together because mm-hmm. you are – she's a villain. I wouldn't necessarily say she is <laughs> the villain, right? The giant kind of comes in and takes yep. on that. Um, but so – you just have like a distaste in your mouth with her, but then you kind of feel mm-hmm. bad for her. And then mm-hmm. her transformation adds, adds another mm-hmm. layer to that. So yeah. So, so I, I definitely have to shout her out. Cause I think she executed all those spokes of the witch beautifully. Yes. Yes. I mean, I will say, cause I'm going to piggyback. Uh, Hannah Waddingham was my favorite uh, of, of, of the cast. And I will say, I think she has to be my favorite witch. She gives Bernadette Peters a run for her money. Uh, and it's mainly because she got in, like, Bernadette Peters is very funny as the witch. She's very, Bernadette Peters is, once again, she's very snappy and sharp. Like, she gets, Bernadette Peters really ampl- like amplifies the humor and the dark wit that that character has. What Hannah did as her witch is she really got into the darkness of who this character is, which made her a little bit less sympathetic but I was okay with that because what she brought was such a more gray character overall. Like uh, the fact that after she chops off Rapunzel's hair, she says, look what you made me do. Like it was just, it just hit because it's like, it, she just captured the whole concept of the witches of truly she, she is the abuser in that relationship. Like the fact that that happens and, and, that, and that's something that has been said to people as a guilt trip in those moments and the fact that she brought that along and then and in other moments when she's about to lose Rapunzel, there, there's a heartbreak in her there. And then, and then, but once again, she's bouncing right back with the fact that she's like hungrily, like almost wolf, like looking at Rapunzel's twins as well. There's that darker undertow again. Like she just, she did the ping pong of this character so well that she, you never quite knew where she was going to land in any particular moment. And, and I, I think that's what made her both, wonderful and scary to watch as you never quite knew where she was going to go in any given scene, whether she was going to lash out at you or if she was going to give you a really heartfelt um, moment as the character. So yeah, truly terrifying. She was, she was wonderful. And I will say for any of our game of Thrones fans, Hannah Waddingham is also well known as the evil Septa Unella who follows Cersei around uh, shouting shame at her. So if she looks familiar, I, I don't think she will because they look very different. The two, the two char- the two, the two characters, but that is who she is. Once again, once again, again, just a physical, terrified presence. You know, you don't realize how tall she is 
until she gets into that um, act two outfit. And you just see just her statuesque quality about her. That's just like, oh, wow. Like, even when like you don't have magic, you still have a physical presence that is quite terrifying when you want it to be. So it also helps that she's not hunching over with the two canes. It's kind of hard to appreciate her tallness in that. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, Mariana, who was your cast shout out? Um, my cast shout out is actually Mark Hatfield as the baker. I mm. really, um, there was I, there was just something so simple um, and moving um, following his journey. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's interesting. Um, I've only seen the show live really once as sort of a cogent adult person because I don't. Really seeing it when I was, you know, five, six, seven, um, when you're just sort of looking at it, like, um, which is fine. Um, but it's interesting. It's always sort of occurred to me as I've gotten older that most of my experience with the show is watching live recordings recorded. Mm-hmm. What that does when there's literally a frame following the characters through the woods mm-hmm. as opposed to seeing the entire stage. Mm-hmm. So I saw it live as an as an adult. I remember sort of thinking, "Wow, there's so many people in this show." <laughs> um, all to say, I found his presence really different in its mm-hmm. almost um, quality, and at, uh, no more really got me. So. Oh, that song, yeah, yeah. Mark, he's wonderful. I mean, he's very different from like the Chip Zine that we're like I'm used to, and I'm sure you're used to from watching as well. That's that. That had it was a little bit more spunky, a little bit sharper, uh, uh, with his verbal barbs. Like Mark was just like he played the epitome of the nice guy who gets roped into an unfortunate story in the woods, and kind of what befalls him there. Like he just was just so nice. In the fact that we'll get more into this, but the fact that he plays the real father at the beginning and at the end of the story, there is just something so nice about his whole circle as a character. He just had the epitome of the nice dad nailed down that is just struggling through the woods ryan who is your cast shout out so i agree with jill that jenna russell was my number one as the baker's wife but i have a backup one because i what jill and i talked before i knew she was also gonna pick her so i I will come with a a second one ready um and it's an unconventional one that nobody's commented on yet Mm -hmm. but mark goldthorpe as the princess steward I thought he was delightful. He had his really like over the top Kermit the Frog voice. Mm-hmm. He was so professional, even when he has to do like terrible things like mm-hmm. kill Jack's mother and yes. for the greater good, which, you know, mm-hmm. thematically is very important like throughout mm-hmm. all of this. But yeah, he he just kind of stole every scene he was in for me. And even though he's not in it that much, just all at least for me, all eyes went to him anytime he was on stage and he had some just like great quips and one-liners that, and lines that I can't even tell if they would be funny in anyone else's voice, but just the way he delivered them were all great. And so, uh, yeah, Mark Goldthorpe, the other Mark of this production, gets my shout out there. He also was a great uh, hen that lays the golden eggs. I did love his bucking when he comes out with a little (laughs) tricycle chicken. (laughs) I I did did enjoy that, that little, that little cameo he made there as that other character. It was great. Uh, Okay. 
So, Marina, I'll let you lead this next one because you've seen a number of productions. You've been in the rehearsal room. You've lived with some of the props. So what was your favorite or uh, production or design element of this particular production? Oh, well, uh, I mean, just how expansive they made this. Mm. I mean, I just didn't, I did not expect the giant to appear out of the trees over there and mm -hmm. Rapunzel just being so... Tower, literally towering over the mm -hmm. scene. So, um, and I read in a, a lot of the reviews, just sort of, it seems so silly that no one had really, I mean, I'm sure outdoor productions of Into the Woods have been done before, of course, but to, to take, you know, an iconic park in London or mm -hmm. an iconic outdoor theater in London and utilize it in this way, um, mm -hmm. really just the, the setting and the, um, the complexity of the space that they made, which I've never actually been to that theater, so I don't know how much of that was to accommodate the size of the seating or for the viewers or, or, or anything like that. Um, but that was just fantastic. I mean, just knowing that they're outside and they're, those are trees and that they're yes. woods is, is just mm -hmm. delights me. <laughs> yeah. I, I also had the set as my number one too. I mean, I love the images that were created in this. Like you said, like the fact that Rapunzel's in a bird's nest, like up in a tree. So it's like a total way of depicting that tower. Also, I love the umbrella beanstalk where they took the spiral staircase and just put those green umbrellas out mm -hmm. to make the beanstalk. And I was like, oh, this was, that was a cool stage image there with that. Um, but I will say my other shadow case that was taken was, I love the excessive violence in this production. Like they totally went in for the violence with this piece. They didn't shy away. And I was like, good, we're actually matching the original Grimm's fairy tale. But like those stories are extremely violent and dark. And a lot of times productions will kind of hide some of the violence away where they're kind of brush it off and like not really focus on it. But this production was like, no, you're going to see some violent stuff. Like, like the fact that when like you see like Rapunzel's prince after he's jumped into the thorn bushes and he comes out with like the things like shooting out of his eyes, it's great. It was like, okay, like that's really terrifying. Or the fact that the stepmother doesn't cut the big toe off, um, but bites the toe off. It doesn't just yeah. in the other production where it's just like, oh look, a fake knife. It's like, no, no, she's really biting the toe and spits the toe out on the onto the ground. It was like, oh, like truly gruesome and just like the fact that the we'll get we'll get more into this as but the fact that the child's a narrator and the child is murdered on stage just ties into the whole fact that in these stories a lot of horrible things befall children rape murder mutilation like children just get maimed and harmed in these stories and the fact that this production totally went into that with having the child as a narrator and just having him squished by a giant uh is I, it, I, it, yeah, just the fact that the directors lean into the violence of this piece and just brought that. So I didn't do it in a hokey way either. That's what I liked. It, it wasn't hokey violence. It was actually some disturbing, almost Titus Andronicus like violence where it's like, it's, it's excessive, but it's like, okay, you're making a point that this is what these stories are. This is what lives in a child's head. Children, like, like children are not, like, like do know about violence. They're not, blind to that so like they will bring those elements into their imagination sometimes when you read a child a story like the prince jumps into the thorn bush a child's imagination of what will that look like totally will 
sometimes get over exaggerated and look like twigs coming out of somebody's eyes. But yeah, there's something really great about that violence. So well done. Well done. Jill. Uh, yeah, great segue, because I think the violence kind of plays into my favorite element, because um, it seemed very 80s to me, how they were showcasing that, like 80s slasher movie, and mm-hmm. I loved that that was definitely a lens with this production, and we get that through little hints of the the boy, right? He comes mm-hmm. in with his Spider-Man lunchbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's play acting with the mm-hmm. actors behind him, he has a troll, he has mm-hmm. a Barbie doll, he has the G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that is sort of um, uh, plastered on top of the characters behind him. And mm-hmm. I, because my favorite design element was the costuming, because um, I really think it played into that. Um, mm-hmm. As you can see behind Mac's head right now, Jack's mother has like the tool belt. So like she's yes. like working mom in the 80s mm-hmm. or... Um, and then you have like the stepsisters have their pant, their plaid pantsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the princes had their sort of Ozzy Osbourne-esque quaffs right um and then you have right you have um uh rapunzel when she's at her shambliest she looks Mm -hmm. like cindy lopper arguably right and Mm -hmm. uh our cinderella had like a nose Mm -hmm. ring and then and like the braids down the front in the very 80s so to me that was wonderful because it added a a, like a physicality Mm -hmm another layer of physicality into our narrator's brain because Mm -hmm. like I was already thinking oh this is cool he's acting this out and and the production of Into the Woods is just an extension of his imagination Mm -hmm. and then because sort of like the 80s flair was shown in the characters we know's costumes Mm -hmm. it made me also start to think oh are some of these is the boy imagining some of the characters in Into the Woods as people in his life. Does he oh. know someone who is like a Cinderella? Does has mm-hmm. he come into contact? Right, like does he worship the the like eighties hair bands or you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just um, it was really cool. It was very subtle. So I guess it was kind of like props and costumes mm-hmm. doing doing a little a little like bit behind to kind of string that through. Yeah. Because um, I think it, it's something that you don't necessarily have to buy into, right? It, it is just mm-hmm. like an aesthetic that I just like loved. Mm-hmm. The dramaturgical nerdy side of my brain was like, ooh, what does it now mean to go like <laughs> 80s on this? And and the, the double meaning of him play acting and then things mm-hmm. happening in the background. Um, but it wasn't like I, I could still just watch the production as yeah. like – a first production of Into the Woods and just mm-hmm. and still get the content of what mm-hmm. Sondheim and um, Lapine were Lapine. doing. Um, but yeah, so so costumes and props for the 80s, 80s little Aesthetic. dash of sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, loved it. Love that. Ryan, uh, what are you yeah. going to go for? So it's similar Mac, to what you were saying about the stage images, like the mm-hmm. beanstalk, like all that stuff. But I want to specifically single out the puppetry mm. because, yeah, Milky White and the hen and the giant, those are like the three most potent images in my mind. And they're what do they all have in common? They're all puppets of in one kind of one kind or another. And like they certainly to me gave very warhorse like handspring vibes, which, yes. you know, I'm a sucker for. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And. I don't even have a lot more to say about it. It's, they're just so animated. They really came to life. I like that you could see the puppeteer at all times. They were never like trying to hide. And that almost just made it 
yeah, more powerful and more mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, like how we just said that the same actor playing the steward played the hen who laid the golden yeah. egg. And, yeah, we see him clucking around and it's funny. And it's not, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, puppetry often goes wrong when you make too much of an effort to try to fool the audience, but yeah. nobody's going to be think, wow, they got a real cow on stage. It's obviously a puppet. So uh, yeah, and I, I like this kind of, interesting handmade aesthetic of the puppets that kind of fits into what Jill was describing about this child's imagination of what these things look like. So mm-hmm. that's my shout out. Love that. Love that. Uh, all right. Uh, Ryan, actually back to you for the next question, which is what was the weakest part of the production for you? Ugh, I was hoping we wouldn't start with me for this one. Um, you guys got to tell me when you guys don't want to start a certain question, because I'll know not to go to you. You don't tell me. I can't know. <laughs> so I don't have a good answer for this one. And because certainly in this room, I'm the least familiar with this show. I don't know if the thing that I'm going to shout out here is actually a problem with this production so much, or if it's actually just something about the musical itself that you're all going to think I'm sacrilege for saying. All right. Uh, like no disrespect to Mr. Sondheim but I find the opening number, our prologue, too much is rushed through in that, like... Uh, Sacrilegious! I know. Get out! And, and again, I don't know, maybe a lot of it, because I haven't seen a lot of productions of this, maybe this one was just sort of not the best paced in, like, the singing and the orchestration and whatever. I can't really judge that, and maybe if others want to chime in and correct me, feel free to but sorry so so your problem with it was there was too much exposition so it's more just that it's all it feels there's there is a lot of exposition to cover and it feels very rushed through in the opening number mm. so when as soon as that whole into the woods prologue ends i'm just sitting there whirlwind like what is even happening we've been introduced to like fifteen thousand characters and it, it, there's a really simple setup to this story. It's that the baker and his wife have been cursed and they need to get these four things and they'll meet these other characters along the way. And then once the story started unfolding, I got that very easily. So I'm like, what was the point of that big whirlwind trying to like catch us up on everyone's deals? Like, and I, and I get that certainly with musicals that there is the setting up everyone's motifs and like the getting the mm-hmm. story like underway in that That's way. That's what and you need to do. Again, I'm not the biggest musical person, but <laughs> I... Mm-hmm. I think that could have been handled more economically. And again, probably isn't this a production specific thing here. Um, But yeah, it it just seems needlessly complicated as our entrance into this world (laughs) or what is ultimately a pretty simple story that then becomes pretty clear as you're going. I don't know. That's just me. Jill, do you want to respond? (laughs) All of us first. Um, I just think, I I mean, and this is just, this might just be putting a take on it. Um, but I think it does the, one of the beautiful things about this piece is, well, first it's Sondheim and everyone Mm -hmm. knows like Sondheim will throw you in the ringer, like from a technical musical Mm -hmm. point of view, like it is a marathon and you gotta be on your shit for Mm -hmm. Sondheim. Um, and the thing I like about him doing this musical, um, and where it's so many different micro stories, right, plastered mm-hmm. on this macro lens and um, taking a risk by connecting them maybe in ways mm-hmm. that they've never been connected before. The beautiful thing that the music and something like that number does in, for me, Ryan, is like 
it does create such a chaos that, but it, you know that it's like organized or like beaded out Controlled chaos. chaos. Contr- right. But like, and as the performer, you know what you're doing, but like true as the audience member, like you got to be quick, like you got to. So in a way to me, it's like introducing like, this is not going to be your beginning, middle end, usual musical. Like there will be twists mm-hmm. and turns and there will mm-hmm. be things that, are going to make you think or are going to keep you on your toes. And I think um, to kind of support that chaos and almost like you're saying, Ryan, like unnecessary, like load of exposition in a snap um, is at the act two when things start to unravel and the pace does start to become a bit more molassesy. It's that stark like contrast, like you're kind of halted, Um, And it really is, it does pivot, right? It's like, oh my goodness, the steward just killed Jack's mother. Okay, great. This has now become like a Game of Thrones thing where you're like, I can't (laughs) put my trust in any of these characters because they may die in any moment. Like, so that's like a roundabout way of saying like, yes, keep, keep the wiliness, keep the, the sort of. Mm-hmm. speed at the front because I think mm-hmm. it, it contrasts beautifully well, and I'm not even against the speed of all of act one which does move at a pretty brisk pace and it's mm-hmm. just specifically the opening number and maybe it was I think it might have more to do with this production than the play as a whole I just think yeah it does feel like mm-hmm. you say controlled chaos to me it, maybe it's controlled from the actor's perspective it did not look controlled watching it and I it's think it's the production friends. That's and that's why pr- I bring it up in this weakest yeah. element of the production for me, like because mm-hmm. I I don't think it's a ding on the musical itself, but yeah. to this production it felt a little uncontrolled for my taste. I I, I think it's the production that's doing it because um, be, be, just because like if you watch the '89 PBS version and the fact that this way that stage was up where it was just three tableaus that are all mm-hmm. pausing, starting, pausing, starting. It can you can follow that a lot easier than the way they kind of reblocked it in all these different levels and different weird things happening in different spaces. And the way the, the way it was shot was very uncohesive. Right. When you watch it on stage in particular, you get a very clear, cohesive flow to the piece where like everything kind of bleeds into one another. Like it, uh, it doesn't feel so herky jerky. So I, I I do get where you're coming from with this production was a very herky jerky. I mean, even in the film version, the 2014 film, that was very good at adapting that. I think that's probably one of the best parts of the whole that the whole damn movie is, is just that opening number because it is such a cinematic number that if you don't cut it right, it can come across as chaotic, herky jerky versus mm-hmm. what Sondheim intended, which was this really kind of flowing piece where one story kind of picks up and then another one kind of moves it along, and then you kind of cut back to the story again. So, yeah, Mariana, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, no, very similar to what what you were just saying. That it that I wonder if it, um, even though I have questions about what framing does to this to this show, I do think framing mm-hmm. that in that in that opening. And so when you do have when you are able to see all everyone at once, and there, um, I wonder if part of it too was a lot of the ensemble was doing um, uh, uh, movement and dance. Mm-hmm at the same time and so you have in addition to Jack and his mother Cinderella the baker and his wife everyone else is on stage as well which was mm-hmm. which I imagine in the theater was fantastic yeah. um, but maybe when it's being filmed it's sort of 
it's like if you've ever watched, you know, a, um, an, an, a broadcast of an opera. It's just sort of mm-hmm. there's so many people and there's so much going on. Well, because it's for an auditorium of four thousand people, and so yeah. um, I don't know how many. Again, I don't know how many people um, can fit into Regent's Park, but uh, I imagine the effect live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's just the consequence of the way we are engaging with it here. But I did find it was a bit of an obstacle to my entrance into the woods, which is a shame because that should be the part that really sucks you in. It Mm -hmm. should. It should. Uh, Jill, what are your thoughts? What is your uh, weakest production or design element? I kind of started with the same vibe as Ryan of like, I don't really know. But now that we're talking... um, an idea was kind of flushed out so um and it's kind of it kind of has to do with this production and how we're talking about through a lens and how it might have been different in person um with the production i was i was in in into the woods we didn't have like external ensemble we just had the cast of characters so Mm -hmm. like even in the ensemble like choral bits we were the ones singing the repetitive like into the woods into the woods into the like and mm-hmm. all of in those it's hard to kind of glean by just watching the production once but every time that that pattern comes back it's mm-hmm. changed like mm-hmm. it's different words mm-hmm. um so um as the actor again it's another thing of like thanks so much composers for keeping our brains spry throughout because the words are now changing but the melody is exactly the same um and it was neat right it was it was neat when uh in the production that i was in where it was just us doing it so one thing that was easy was like i knew i was singing those bits as little red so something like actor wise that was easier for me to get the right lyrics because I'm also terrible with lyrics in real life. Um, I would like tag on what each lyric would mean to Red. Um, And the Mm. one thing that I found was kind of what Ryan is kind of saying is in those repetitive bits in this production, um, it was hard for me. And maybe this is just because I've had the experience of what I just described, but it was it was hard for me to see extra bodies on stage go through the same journey because we're not seeing their journey through the woods. Mm-hmm. It, we're just kind of seeing them on stage for this yeah. like bigger number. Um, and I was like, why are you saying mm-hmm. to granny's house or why are you saying, you know, whereas mm-hmm. like um, s- scoping it down to the carrot, like mm-hmm. Jack and red and Cinderella and everything saying mm-hmm. these things, I can be like, Oh, right. Because you're all on the journey into the woods and you're all intertwined. So you could talk about that. Mm-hmm. So that I guess it just kind of took me out in these bigger yeah. numbers with like added chorus members. Mm-hmm. I was just confused sometimes of like, we don't really need them. Or like I was, I would just be curious to be like, why, why do we have this like extra perspective? Um, and again, I haven't, I haven't seen aside from the movie in this production, I haven't seen any other production. So I would be interested to see if, if it's normal to have like a bulk of ensemble to kind of come into those, or if there's other versions where they do just keep like the, the leading or like the, the stock characters singing those pieces. Um, But yeah, so in a nutshell, I was taken out a little bit in the chorus members because I was like, why, why do we need these extra bodies on stage? Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Mariana, since you have quite a, a bit of experience with different productions and different things like that, what are your thoughts? What do you think didn't quite work, or did, or or, 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 or do you think it was a pretty solid show overall? Well, it was. I was thinking about this question um, when you sent us the, the questions ahead of time because I'm sort of thinking. Um, I wonder. Uh, I'm thinking about Sondheim musicals, and if there's any way of sort of thinking about them in terms of opera. And I'm gonna use a lot of, it's not gonna be a perfect fit and I apologize in advance for like actual opera people and actual musical theater people, I'm sorry. Um, but something that in, in the little experience I, I have learning about opera, the, the thing is, right, there's no platonic ideal production that exists necessarily. Like the score is the score and then you can have a lot of different productions rising out of that score with those characters needing certain things and a story being told right and so all of a sudden i was sort of thinking okay well what happens when you put into the woods in a big outdoor theater like what are the demands of that production of into the woods because i might have my own you know i obviously am very touchy-feely about the original and um so it's sometimes hard for me to be <laughs> very objective when when watching other productions um but so i'm just sort of thinking okay they needed to do it outside so probably it's going to be bigger and have more people um, than a production in the theater where all of those people would just be too overwhelming okay great so that i'm sure live worked beautifully i i don't again i don't know all that much about regent's park but maybe they it was more of a family show um, and so maybe some of the, the choreography and the movement in those fun costumes, besides the, um, the point that you made Jill about it being out of the boy's head, like there's, they're eye catching, they're eye popping, they're fun. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Um, if we want to make all of these characters emerge from this boy's imagination, then I see how it all fits together. So I guess I'm sort of thinking why I go back to opera is if there's no, like perfect into the woods that exists and in the ether that we're trying to strive for. Mm -hmm. And this production had a certain set of ideas and needs, then I think, yeah, it had a vision and it absolutely saw it through, even if maybe for me, you know, um, like I do have questions about, okay, well, if they, they mostly I just sort of have, Mac knows, I always have yes, more yes. questions than answers. Um, Love it. Really annoying. <laughs> I love it. Me, um, but so some. So I might wonder. Okay, well, if it's going to be out of the boy's imagination, then do these characters have integrity as characters? Because even if he, you know, because once the child is eaten by the giant or dropped by the giant in his nightmare, then what do we make of everything that happens between him being eaten and waking mm -hmm. up? Is sort of just a just a question I I have, um, but in terms of they had an idea, we're going to make the narrator boy, and it's going to be from his mind, and we're going to do it outside in this huge space, and maybe make a, you know, the theme, the you know, the the home base for this production is about children will listen. Mm -hmm. I think they they had a plan and they executed it mm -hmm. to the fullest logical extent. Is sort of what yeah. I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think out of all the Sondheim canon, and it's a big-ass canon of, I mean, the fact that this is volume two of his work, like, full of stuff that he does. 
Um, like, I think this is his most malleable musical where because it's a fairy tale, it can be reimagined so many ways. Like I know when Stratford did it um, a number of years ago, directed by Peter Hinton, uh, they did it where it was set in Canada. So act one was Canada in the fall. And then act two was Canada in the winter. Uh, and like the witch, she like her staff was actually a giant asparagus stock and they actually and she was covered in vegetables. It was Susan Gilmore. I wish I had seen this show. It looks so cool. I mean, Bruce Stout, if you look up a picture of him, he like in act two, he's literally all white from head to toe uh, as, as if he's been caught in a giant snowstorm. It looks it, look, it looks like one of like one of the group of seven uh, paintings is basically what they did. It looked really it looked really cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I do. I, I do think that this musical is most open to reimaginations, reinterpretations of of just how does a fairy tale look? I mean, versus like a production like Follies, which is a very particular time and place and you don't have much choice of what you can do with it. This, like, once again, your imagination can just explode. But once again, dramaturgical due diligence is required. Don't just willy nilly it like, oh, it's a fairy tale. I can do anything. It's like, no, no, no. There still has to be some dramaturgical work done here to keep your concept cohesive, uh, which actually ties into what my uh, weakest element was, which was the direction of this piece by Timothy Sheeter and uh, Michael Steele. It was an uneven direction, in my opinion. Some elements of the show really hit their mark and then other elements did not. So some casting choices were really brilliant, like Hannah Waddingham as the witch, Jenna Russell as the baker's wife. The fact you get Judy Dench to record as the giantess and actually give us a very sympathetic giantess where like her last lines of thank you, now I can go in peace. And the fact that then you go and kill her, it's like, oh, like, like she wasn't so villainous after all. She, like she, Judy Dench brought the point that the giantess has an uh, like a motive that isn't totally wrong. Like, um, so that was great. But then other casters is like, Beverly Red is Little Red. She was just too old for the part. Like, I, 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 unfortunately, I can't get um, Danielle Furland from the, from, the, from the 89 version. And she was 18 when she recorded, but she was 16 when she started that role. So she was in the perfect age. Jill, you were the right age for Little Red at 15, where like Little Red should be someone who is just on the cusp of adulthood, who is discovering these um, like new adult emotions, sexual feelings, things like that. Like there is an undertow that could turn when you have somebody who's in their clearly in their twenties, trying to play childlike, it just didn't quite work. So like that was a miss. Uh, and then like other things was like um, the costumes, like the witch's costume with the stick arms and the mask work that was done, and then. Then like the act two, just green gown that she wears, stunning. But then like the Cinderella and Prince look, I just was not having that. Like, I'm sorry, Cinderella with the face piercing is just, and dreadlocks. I was like, no, no. I mean, you can do that if you want that her to be, if you want that to be her traditional non-ball look and then have her change into a ball, a ball princess look, idyllic princess look, and then have her change back, which gives him more reason why the prince wouldn't recognize her which just goes to show he really is very um, superficial that he does this with her. So like the fact that, and uh, the princes, like they just were a little bit too steampunky for my <laughs> princely cup of tea. Um, and then like other certain directing choices, like Jack and the Harp, 
I love that they made the harp like a, 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 like a tall statuesque woman in Jack as he's in his early 20s is just, to be frank, looking to bang something. And the fact that throughout the entire piece, he's like giant breasts. Like he is clearly a boy who is like Little Red opening up, exploring his sexuality, exploring being a, being, being a young male adult. And the fact that he comes out with this beautiful statuesque harp that literally looks like she just hates her life. Uh, being dragged around from man to man. I was like, smart. There's something, you, you, you've done something smart there. Or like the depiction of Rapunzel's descent. The fact that she goes from relatively kept together at the end of the first act and her kind of just glee at getting away from the witch to by the time you see her in act two where she is totally dissented. She's drinking. Like it's a very modern, well done interpretation of what that descent would look like. And, uh, and just the puppet of the giant was really good. But then like other things like the baker and his wife, a lot of times they fell flat to me. Like their bickering was very flatline like there was no escalation to that like the whole go home after she loses the cow they didn't build up enough to have hannah waddingham come with that big energy of shut up like go like like the cat like go get the like go get the thing so like that didn't quite work or the fact that um the final interaction between the baker and his wife they took away the fact that in the original script it's the baker's wife who controls that moment who sends him off 100 paces and it shows once again that he is dependent on her, which then makes his change at the end of the show when he finally goes, no, I can't do this without my wife. She's going to be with me, but I can actually step out and not depend on her for direction all the time. The fact they took that away from her in, the, in that last minute kind of undercut a lot of stuff. So like some choices were really strong and made, made things really work. And then the stuff that didn't quite hit just stood out even more because of... So, because of some of the choices, like some choices worked really well, then other choices didn't quite work. Like the fact that the the old man, the mysterious old man, is really dressed in a suit, yet he's supposed to be this forest hermit. It's like, why is he dressed that way? Like he like, and yet he's wearing a backpack. Like some of the choices were just off to me. So I, I would put that under the unevenness of, of the direction of the piece, because ultimately they're the ones that have to make the choice of what goes and what stays. So, um, so Ryan, Nat, you are giving me a look. What just because uh, this isn't the first episode in which you've said unevenness of direction is your weakest mm. element, and you know, listening to all of these different threads mm. that you're pulling together in this, would you rather more things be bad to even it out? Because that kind no. of like, because <laughs> no, like, not if, at all. But just, just the way that you say that the really, did not work. But you're saying like the really good things make the things that weren't as good more like prominent. It sounds like then you would prefer a washed out mediocre production to nope. one that has some pretty inspired stuff that maybe makes some other things pale in comparison. I don't know. Like, nope. nope. I mean, I'm. I mean, I mean, the direction. What I once again, it's it's the director's choices. Some of them worked really well. Some of them didn't. And unfortunately, when the ones that didn't work just hit harder because some of their other choices were really good and came and hit their mark really well. So when you miss something, it's like, oh, it just kind of gets that much more pronounced. So I, I don't want a mediocre production. I yeah, want you to take a swing at it. Just I, I know just that think sometimes like, things won't work. Just, just the way you frame you it with the stuff. unevenness, I feel like it makes more sense to pick out the specific things you don't like than just say that in relation to the things that were good, I wish it was more even. Like that makes it sound like a... You know, I, I just it's a thought that I've had a few times that you've brought this up in episodes, and I'm just like, that doesn't really track. Uh, 
Mariana, you also are giving a, a thinking look. When you say that something, what what's the what's your metric for what works and what doesn't when it when talking? Well, whether it's just for this show in particular, if you want to keep it to this show in particular, but when when you're asking, I'm just I'm curious because I yeah I feel like everyone's comparing it to different things in their head and so on. Well, for me, I'm look well when I was looking at this, so I'll keep it to this show. But like my first thing looking at it was uh, first of all because I've watched this production before, so I knew about the whole child narrator routine thing. So the whole concept of they made the choice to have the child never meeting that clearly it's going to be from the child's perspective and the whole doll pointing things. So like, that was one element that was like, are they honoring that element? If, and if they're not, then sometimes that's not fully hitting other elements are like, what is your aesthetic? Like as a director, cause like clearly a director makes a choice and it's, and it, I hope a director makes a choice of time, place and design of some type of choice, whether like it's, as we said, the Canadian version that they did where it was all set in Canada, had that Canadian look to it, whether it's the original production that is very kind of fairy tale illustration with its design or this one, which was kind of like modern meets steampunk meets child's imagination. So there's a bit more of a mix mash of things. So yeah, my biggest things were, did they hit their thing aesthetically and, and what is like dramaturgically did they kind of go and and and, and kind of get, get, give a solid through line? Because as a director, that is your job. You are overseeing the your your vision. Like if I came in and said, "I want to do Into the Woods," but I want to set it, I don't know. Um, uh, what's a weird example? Under the sea. Like everything's going to be under the sea for Into the Woods. It's all going to be mermaids and fish. Hell, and if, right? <laughs> and if all of a sudden, like something just doesn't jive like like all of a sudden you got a talking seagull which sure you're just describing little mermaid <laughs> but, 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 but the thing of if you're doing into the woods where everything's under the water and all of a sudden you got a talking seagull sure a talking seagull could work does it fit design or aesthetically no but it was a choice you make and i honored the choice you made but i'm gonna but I, as an audience member you're gonna come away at anything you watch going did that choice work did that cut in that film work like watching the movie version. Did I like the fact that they cut a lot of the mysterious man and no more? No, but I get why Rob Marshall did it for the sake of time, but I don't feel it I don't feel it helped the story. In fact, it undercut that story and really kind of cut the Baker's big moment, uh, which really sucked. <laughs> so once again, choice by Lapine and Rob Marshall as the writers of the script. Did it work? I don't know if it did or not. I, in my opinion, it didn't. So See, now my mind is just going through like what are all the equivalences in our under the sea version. Obviously, Milky I'm White would be here. a manatee because yeah. sea cow. I'm obviously, the mermaid soundtrack uh, in my head right now. The wolf would be a shark. That makes sense. Yep. Um, yeah. the, the giant might be like a scuba diver. If you think like the first SpongeBob movie, that's oh, kind of sure. like this big threatening force with like or, you know, or Cyclops like in happy, in happy Feet. You know when it takes that darker <laughs> twist and he, like mm -hmm. mankind comes on the. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, so scene, that's that extent. Right? Yeah. Climate change. <gasps> yes. Get the. We're doing it. Yeah. Okay. The four of <laughs> us. We will get together, and after we done, we're done recording this. We will call up yeah. Sondheim and Lapine and yeah. get the rights for this. Yeah. I'm sure Sondheim would love an Into the Sea. Production. Into the <laughs> Sea. There's the title. <laughs> there we go. It's choice. Choices. Choices are made, and as a director, you got to make those choices. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. And then. 
sometimes if you're going really big on a concept, your choices that won't work can really kind of stand out. So, all right, let's get into, do we think this production is worth the watching? Jill, as a uh, aunt with, a, with two young nieces and nephews, <laughs> is this how you would want to introduce uh, them to this musical, or would you rather go back to like um, a film ver- the film version, so, or the nine version? Funny enough, I don't really find this musical like kid friendly. Like it can <laughs> be, I think mm-hmm. like kids can come to it. And like I said, like the production I was in, it was for a community theater production that predominantly the demographic is bring your kids to see a show. Mm-hmm. They usually do one in the spring, one in the fall, and at least mm-hmm. one of those is family friendly. Mm-hmm. So Into the Woods that year was that. So that's part of the reason too why I think these innuendos weren't really on the nose as much for that production. We kind of kept the innocence a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but also, you know, depending on the age of the child, I think possibly some of the stuff that this production did would just go over a kid's head, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about because this production in particular was very spectacle-esque in some moments, mm-hmm. right? Like the the giant's composition of um, mm-hmm. and the deconstruction and reconstruction of the giant all over mm-hmm. and the beanstalk and having these characters flood in and out. I definitely think it could be fantastical mm-hmm. enough for a child to just kind of dwell in that and you don't have to really worry of them asking asking about the the birds and the bees um which is fine too if if it does trigger that for them um but i yeah i would i would recommend this i think this production is worth watching like i think um i'm i'm glad you brought up mariana the the whole like opera uh sort of case study thing of how I think this is definitely a musical where any take can sort of be put on it. There isn't, there isn't just this, this is the version that we're grasping for or needing to put forth on the stage. And um, I think this musical, the way it was written, uh, it does have a lot of space and breathing room to be interpreted different ways, but yet the, the interwoven story plots will always be the same because that's just what the content of the piece is. Um, so I think if this is like your first intro to Into the Woods, it does a good job of of um, sewing those connections together. Um, and everyone's like character work was mm-hmm. was really grounded, even if it might have been a, di- a pr- an approach to a character that you're like, that doesn't work for me. I think it mm-hmm. it was still sort of grounded in a sense mm-hmm. of you can they they were playing the piece of the puzzle that they needed yeah. to be playing um and i love that it's seen it's site specific too right like that you're getting this you're you're getting to see a production of into the woods in the woods um yeah so i, I would say it's worth watching but i would also say because there are some differences with the take on the piece and we'll get mm-hmm. into this but some characters are sometimes split or merged together mm-hmm. it would definitely be worth your while to check out other versions like the movie mm-hmm. version or the bernadette peters version which i actually mm-hmm. have seen that a long time ago um rewatch it it's just great yeah just to kind of to get more you'll ne- I, I would argue you'll never see the exact same production of this musical which oh, wow. makes it awesome mm-hmm. so unless you yes, rewatch the, the exact same production right <laughs> then, then you will yes it's, it's worth <laughs> like the if watch, you rewatch the Bernadette Peters one yes you've seen it twice um, explore other woods I would say yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mariana what are your thoughts well you know me right now we're in a pandemic just watch theater and enjoy <laughs> 
call live people in front of a live audience just mm-hmm. to, like, have a ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, watch anything. Watch everything. Art. Art is important. Art is good. Give funding to the arts. Do all those things. Great. Um, uh, um, yeah. Um, it's, it, it's interesting. I sort of think... Um, right. It, it was interesting watching the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course they would put this in the credits, but it didn't occur to me until I saw it that they would put it there. But it sort of, it says like this, this, this musical or this, the, the choice to, for a child to play the narrator is not part of this show. It was a choice by the director. It was, it was interesting that they, cause of course you would have to, cause I imagine they, right, they had to get permission. And, oh yeah. Um, but so it's sort of. It's right. I like I like what you said, Jill. Of visit other woods as well. Um, but of course, like I'm always my heart home is going to be '89 version. It's mm-hmm. it's my origin story in, in more ways than one. And um, and uh, and I think what's what is different ab- ab- about that original because because Into the Woods has had. I mean, it, sorry, the sentence is going so many different places at once. Um, Love it. If you t- my mom will often is often very surprised when um, people the the reaction that people get what that when they hear that she was part of the part of the original show just because you know they were putting this together in a time when like Phantom of the Opera was opening right it was the era of the big British musical mm-hmm. he's on Broadway like not sexiest time um and they're putting together this this really twisted weird fairy tale musical people were still not we're like we're you're a genius but we're not sure how we feel about you. <laughs> and so the idea that that show has become this so many so many people get introduced to musical theater through this show yeah mm-hmm. Like and and it's the great. Goosebumps. <laughs> and it's one of the, and growing up, my mom only let me watch Act One. <laughs> I, I was I was like right. I, it was when they were doing the revival, and I was six or seven that I realized there was part two. <laughs> um, but but all to say, it's 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 wonderful and, and really still surprising to her that incredible, huge life. Um, and that there are, that there is a junior version that, that you can get, you know, anyway, so, um, so yeah, watch it and visit other woods. I think, I think something that is really interesting about the original is you're seeing this show before it became the, 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 it's not a phenomenon, but right. It's, it's, it, a lot of people know it. Um, and, uh, and so what I do think is interesting about that original is, is the way that you you see it. It's very much a world of adults. Mm-hmm. Um, explicitly, this is an adult world using these tropes of stories that we tell to children. Um, and so having those adult human characters really working, working the problem and trying to figure it out so that they can get what they want, I think there's something really interesting there. And, and then you get the original conception, which is the narrator, which I know we're going to talk about later, but mm-hmm. I, I hope 
there's there was sense in there. Sometimes I think being raised on Into the Woods means that all my thoughts also do this. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah. No, that made total sense. Yeah. I mean, this is Sondheim's most produced work out of all his canon. This is the one that gets done most often. And I mean, just thinking about the different versions that have come to Broadway, like there was the original and then like the one your mom and a stepdad produced that actually had the storybooks as trees. And I remember watching that with Laura Bonanti. So like every version is a reinterpretation of this fairy tale. So, and but it, it is such a cultural touchstone for people. Yeah, and sorry, last last thing. And it's so interesting. Um, another story that, that my mom might, has told me is um, how in the original, like the, even if it wasn't necessarily written that this way, the baker's wife was the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of that was just Joanna Gleason's performance, which no one was able to, to match really. Um, especially my mom who uh, understudied and was her standby. And so, and my mom would tell stories about how there, Joanna Gleason could get laughs on lines that no one, no one to this day has gotten laughs on um, and how it was just an impossible task for, for my mom to fill, fill that role. Um, but how in the in the 2002 revival, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. Cinderella, Cinderella sort of became the the heart of the show in, in, in a way. And so it's it's interesting when you think about who the, who the adult characters are and who become, who takes care of each other. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, as you, as you said, Mac, um, Baker's wife, mm-hmm. Baker can't get by without Baker's wife. And that's a huge part of, of Act Two. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that Cinderella starts with no one is alone and the way mm-hmm. that she works and her coming into her mothering mm-hmm. over the course of the show. Anyway, all to say, mm-hmm. visit all the woods. Um, visit all the woods. Love that. Ryan, as our resident TA and future professor, uh, would you end up putting this on a syllabus? Ooh, that's such uh, a question. Sorry. No, the, he asks me this every time, and I, I, I never have a good answer, or rarely do. So, so again, not a musical theater specialist, so mm-hmm. I can't imagine what course I would be teaching where I would decide, yep, Into the Woods is going on the syllabus. Like American theater overview class. Well, okay. So if I'm doing American theater overview, there's really probably only two musicals I would consider putting on the syllabus. And that Ooh. I think it Oklahoma or now Hamilton. Hmm. Cause I think those are actually interesting meditations on what is America through theater. And no, I'm not putting 1776 on there before you ask. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to, Ryan. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if it was just an American theater overview, no, this w- and nothing against this show. I enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't think this is necessarily an interesting enough cultural touchstone to be representative of. A- again, if I'm doing a course on American theater because it's me, it's not going to be a musicals course or even like 50-50. Like there will be maybe one or two on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if I was as the TA in whatever course, whether it's a musical course, I don't know why I got hired for that one, but a job is a job. Uh, you know, squawk, it's a living, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, if, or if just any course I'm doing and the prof is already put into the woods on syllabus, I would certainly consider showing students this production. Mm-hmm. I think it it's like a good one. It definitely gets the idea across. My kind of one ding, as I mentioned earlier, was that I found it was like 
tough getting into it in the first number but then after that i thought it was pretty straightforward and good and mm-hmm. and yeah i liked a lot of the choices it made so i but i think what i really need to do now hearing all those conversations i need to visit more woods because i don't think i have enough to really make that decision and after everything i've heard all of you say i think after i've had that tour of various different woods there's probably others that i would more likely choose to if i'm only going to use our limited class time to introduce students to one of them I'd be surprised if after all of that journeying, this one still turns out to be the the number one pick. But as like uh, my first stage version of this and really like, I'm not going to lie the, the movie while I did see it didn't leave a big impression on me. So um, yeah, this I think is a very strong production. It hits the mark in my book. And yeah, I'll get back to you after I've done all those other trips to the woods. Love it. Love it. I mean, I will say, um, for me, I think this is a fine adaptation. Uh, it's it's it, it, it's its own unique look, which I appreciate. They didn't just try and copy the '89 uh, production; they really swung at it. And I think overall, their good choices outweigh the few things that didn't quite hit. So I would recommend it. However, the '89 recording for me is like like Marianne, It is my definitive. Woods, like, uh, like it is my touchstone. It's the one I grew up on watching. Um, I have very fond memories of watching it as a teenager. And and, and after, so after Sweeney Todd, this was kind of the next big song time that got me really into, into his canon and, and an appreciation of his canon. Um, also, West Side Story is in there too, but he was, wasn't as heavy on that one. Like this is a true song time, song time. Um, so I would say if, if, if you're going to show people and introduce them to the woods, uh, I would go with the 89 version first because it's a little bit more accessible because of its classical aesthetic, classical style to it. It's, I think it's shot a little bit better. Um, so like the opening number comes across much clearer. Um, and also you got like, as Mariana said, Joanna Gleason as the baker's wife. Like nobody has beat her like Amy Adams played it uh, in Central Park. Great. She had her own interpretation, but Joanna Gleason, like she, uh, as Marianne pointed out, and from my research when I was doing this for my podcast episode, um, she really did help shape who this character was. And that's, and it really is her portraying this character on the stage. And so when something, when a role so iconic is written around her, and there's a reason why she beat Patti LuPone for the Tony that year uh, in a giant upset. Uh, of theater history. When people thought it was going to be Patti LuPone, it's Reno Sweeney and anything goes and surprise, it's Joanna Gleason. Um, and so like, yeah, like there's like, you need to watch it just for Joanna Gleason alone. Cause she just brings such heart to the Bakers with that. I don't think anybody else has found like Joanna Gleason's death as the Baker's wife hits so much harder than anything else I've seen. Uh, like other productions I've seen, he's like, okay, like I know it's coming. It's, it's, there's a mixed emotion on, 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 on her death. Um, but overall it is a sad moment for her where just as she's found her way back onto the path and has discovered her kind of direction she's going to go in. And then ultimately she's stepped on by the giant fun fact though. She actually was supposed to die via poison apple, apparently in an out of town Broadway tryout that I, 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 I watched. So apparently there was a version that she was going to, it's not, but she was going to step off the path to eat an apple. And the witch goes, don't eat any fruit in the woods. 
very biblical. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, but yeah, I would say start with the 89 and then show them kind of where things are branched off from. Because the 89 is such a great roots of the piece. Uh, it's, it's the one that Sondheim will kind of had the closest involvement with. So I think it's closest to what they envisioned the piece to be, even though like Sondheim's been very happy with the different interpretations. Apparently he went and saw this version three times uh, and said he really enjoyed it. So um, nothing, nothing wrong with that. If Sondheim gives you a thumbs up, that's a pretty good sign. Uh, but I mean, I think start with the original and then branch out. I, I would say the same thing with any production. If you start with the original version, they can always branch out and see the different woods that have sprung from it. But start with the root and then grow from there is what I would say. Nice botanical metaphor. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's get into some text-based questions because Sontan gives us a lot to chew on, just like Milky White at the end of Act One. Uh. Uh, (laughs) There we go. Okay. So this production is unique by it was a production that split the normally double castrel of the narrator and mysterious man into two separate actors. Uh, how did this casting decision impact your viewing experience? Is something lost or is something gained by this choice? Mariana, Mar- you, you, you've alluded to this element of the production, so I'll let you start. Um, I, ah, yeah, no, I, I, again, I just sort of come with questions. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it was really interesting because it took, it took me a second and all of a sudden I thought, wait, did they split it into three? Because when um, the mysterious man is haunting the witch mm-hmm. with, you know, I'm trying to get you what you wanted and all these yeah. sorts of things. All of a sudden I'm thinking, is there another person who's the narrator? And then is there this? And then I just sort of got a bit um, turned around just because mm-hmm. I think, and this could totally be my wacko understanding of the original mm-hmm. um, but there's something really interesting about the antagonism between the witch and the narrator mm-hmm. the fact that the narrator comes in as the mysterious man and is the baker's father um, I think is just a structural how question mm-hmm. of the play in general and sure if you if you split the narrator role you kind of dodge that answering that question mm-hmm. um, but I missed it a bit because I think mm-hmm. there's something there's something more going on about how conscious is the witch of being part of this story or not um, which is I think part of the original conception of having the narrator be part of the story and then truly be killed um, and it's not all just a nightmare um, so again those are just sort of questions I had and maybe some things that I that I missed and maybe my association with the original was so strong that I even, it took me a second to remember who even was saying what, because then I had questions about why the, why the mysterious man would be like having a beef with the witch other than their, their past history, which we know mm-hmm. from the book. So mm-hmm. mostly, mostly questions. And again, um, sort of what I said earlier about the, the, the very clear choice of youth, youth, Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how it might have changed if if it had been a, a teenager or someone a bit older, and how maybe some of those other choices we've already talked about would land um, as mm-hmm. a, someone who is reading like a nine or ten year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, that's a whole element that I totally forgot about, which is the fact that does the witch know she's in a story? Because she has the line in Act Two of some people don't like the way you've been telling it, which means is this witch very cognizant of the fact that he's been here the whole time? Like, kind of ripping her down and taking away her magic. And because it's the narrator who says, as is the way of all fairy tales, when you trade um, age for youth, you lose something along the way. Ergo, the witch loses her magic. It's a narrator's choice to take her magic away in that moment. So yeah, interesting. I didn't. I totally forgot that extra fourth dimensional bit of this chessboard. So oh wow, that's so mm, that's interesting. Jill, uh, uh, you're nodding along, so I'll let you talk for yeah, a bit. Yeah, my brain is exploding new, with all the ideas. Okay, this new Mariana um, development. Yeah, like like snowballing off of Mariana. I was also mm. confused because um, again, I feel like I've referenced it so often, but. Um, mm. It is the freshest thing in my brain. The, art, the production of Interludes I was in, we did mm. do Mysterious Man with, was the narrator. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that is that it, it like creates the extra layer of, mm-hmm. as an audience member, like we're watching a character talk about characters. So like, he's the only, like that actor is the only one kind of like, in two worlds at once, mm-hmm. right? We almost get like a second sphere of character work by mm-hmm. having the mysterious man also the narrator. Like mm-hmm. our version, we made it very known that this is the same person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think that the mysterious man does beautifully, and especially um, as we're gaining exposition in act one, is I would argue like it's the mysterious man that keeps the plot going because he's the one that plants the riddles in the baker's Mm -hmm. brain to keep him going on the journey Mm -hmm. or to make him pivot or to make him Mm -hmm. question. And Mm -hmm. what was wonderful is that like our narrators do that in the stories Mm -hmm. we tell, right? By just being the narrator Mm -hmm. um, and sort of making him the mysterious man. And then we find out that's also the baker's father now we get into another layer of like storytelling and it mm-hmm. being generational. And then we also find out the baker and the baker's wife have a son. So it's passed on to passed on to passed on. And I'm getting goosebumps because I love when my brain does this thing where it's like, <laughs> I don't really know what we're talking about, but then it ends up being this cool thing that's discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. So, so that again, I don't, I would, I would never even have thought to split them up. Right. Or to mm-hmm. have them different. Yeah. And I guess it, could work but for me it's not as strong because I like I like what the because looking back at the 89 version it was combined and then I had to go back and sort of look at the history of the production and there's actually some t- like a lot of times more than I thought that they do split these up like I think it was uh, if I can pull up the years again um the 1990 West End version split them. The 2007 mm-hmm. West End revival split them. Um, our production did. The Central Park production did. And the recent Hollywood Bowl 2019 production also split. So arguably now, it's almost sliced down the middle. There's as many productions with it combined as there are with it separated. Um, which to me, that's interesting because I'm like, is the production itself evolving, right? Like, are we... Are we dissociating them for a reason now? Like, that's a whole nother, like, philosophical maybe conversation to have. But, (laughs) right? I know. I'm like, I could talk about the mysterious man, the narrator for ages. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think it was interesting what they were doing with this 
production, especially it being a kid, right? They're going like stark different now. It's not just like mm-hmm. two middle-aged men. It's now there's a generational divide between those mm-hmm. characters. But it made me question like why is the mysterious man here, right? Like similar mm-hmm. to what Mariana's saying, like what is the relationship to the mysterious man and the witch besides only being the baker's dad? But then I'm like, okay, then why do we even have a narrator? Like it mm-hmm. – it just, it took my while, it took my brain a while to just, I saw them so much as a, as a cohesive package mm-hmm. and like dotting the I's and crossing the T's in this production as a unit. So with them separated, I was like, I had to just do a little bit more mm-hmm. investigative kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, that's just a lot. That's a lot just thrown there. So I'm going to mm-hmm. pass the torch. <laughs> Ryan, as a resident dramaturg, what do you think? So... I'm hearing everything you're all saying, um, but perhaps this is me coming from it with much less of a frame of reference to other versions of this. I emphatically thought that the way they did this works so well. In fact, I refrain from getting into it and the does like, is this worth a watch? But like, I think this is, this decision is the reason why I love this production so as much as I did. And there's kind of two big parts of it where I think, like, I, I honestly can't imagine it being done the other way that you're all describing it, like, which I, I, I understand there's historical precedent for it, but this being, like, my kind of real first inroad into it, like, I, I just think this is, to me, the definitive way of doing these characters. And so there's sort of two big reasons why I thought it worked so well. The first one is, like, like you've all kind of been saying about how the narrator when he's doubled with Mysterious Man, inserts himself in the story and shows his control of the story by planting the seeds in the baker's mind. That, I think, kind of ruin, if that is done, it would ruin what I thought was a very strong line when they're sacrificing the narrator to the giant. And correct me if I'm wrong, does that that happens in every production? That's not just unique to this one? Because... The, the narrator says, I, I wrote it down, like, I tell the story. I'm not part of it. So if he is the same person as the mysterious man, then that suddenly becomes a lie. And I liked the sincerity of that because he is not, in fact, part of it as we've been watching. He's in a different costume, though. So, like, as the audience, you know, just, just as, like, a thing. But, like, okay. usually it's, at least in the production I was in, the mysterious man was at least put on, like, a jacket or a hat. So then they might as well just be different characters in my mind, if that's how you're going to do it, which this production. But did. it's like we knew we knew it was the same actor, but like the people in the story wouldn't. Have, so then we, sense. the audience, know that, oh, he's kind of lying here because he put on the character's costume to be that character. And I, I kind of like the fact that we do have these like two divisions of the the storyteller and the story being told like it's. I don't know, I just do a lot of research with narratology and stuff, and I think I'm not going to get into why uh, hetero versus a homo-diegetic narrator makes more sense in this context, because you don't need to hear that. But like, um, but yeah, I, I, I like that. That moment felt so strong for me when they all turn like, to the narrator and be like, it's your fault, and you're the one to be sacrificed, because yeah, it, it kind of has this shattering effect of the division between these worlds that, oh, wait, they can see him. And it's sort of like what was brought up before about how does the witch know she's part of this story? And and, and I, I love that kind of solution that there's this external person who's telling the story, let's sacrifice him to the giant and all of our problems will be solved. And it doesn't. Like, I, 
And Jill, you want to comment on that? You I just, again, it, it's just interesting now because we talked about like the explosiveness of moments and throughout this piece through like different characters. And I would say that like them noticing the little kid as the narrator was another one of those like, wait, what? Why? How? When did that? Because it did seem like all of a sudden they're like, it's you. And I'm like, wait. Did they know that he was telling their story the whole time? Like, why all of a sudden did they recognize this boy? Did they sacrifice this? Like, it just was a bit stark. Like, it was like I, that. I just thought it was a powerful moment of sudden lucidity that they all kind of collectively experienced that, wait a minute, we're characters in a story. Which, yeah, like, you can kind of then go back and read through, were they aware of it at various different points? But I like that it wasn't acknowledged until then. Yeah, again, that 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 maybe builds into a, a stylistic element that this production does. Is it snaps you into like, oh, yeah. guess this and, is happening now. Guess that, this moment is that felt strong to me. I, I like right. those shifts. I, I thought it would have been kind of to me weaker by comparison if like they either just always knew that they were in a story or we just kind of don't like. Uh, but this kind of brings me to the my reason number two why I thought this is such a strong choice to split them up is. Because, well, so, and this goes back to what I said at the very beginning about why the children will listen was, I thought, the strongest song, certainly, in this, is that the fact that the narrator is the baker's son, is that, that's not usually the case, as I understand it, if it's not usually a little kid, or... No, so normally, like, the whole thing with the cyclical nature of the story is, like, their narrator and like the mysterious man are like the father. So it's father son, and then the musical ends with the baker talking to the baby just yeah. on stage, so, on, sitting so on the, a log. And then he's telling the story now and he's become the narrator. Of the so piece. if that's the case, so wait, he becomes, he, the baby becomes the narrator. Who's also the father. That's just weird. That's like, so edible. No, 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 like, no, no, no. The baker becomes the narrator to his son. Okay. Who is I a baby. see. Okay, that so makes more sense. So it's the fact that his serious man <laughs> okay, was also the narrator, there. passed the story down to his son, and now you're adding on, like, so adding on to the story. What I like about the narrator now being the son all along is that it kind of, this is the story he's telling about his dad, not the story that his dad tells him. And I think that once we get to that moment at the end where the witch is singing that song about the children listening and they go into the woods it kind of gives the whole thing a new twist that you didn't see coming, at least, or I didn't see coming, that suddenly, and it goes back to what, Jill, you were saying before about the costumes, that this is the child's imagination. We understand that before, but now at that very end of the play, we get this sense of, oh, that's the story we've been following this whole time. The child's understanding, like, reinterpretation of the story that his dad told him, but he's been our storyteller all along. It doesn't go from the baker's dad told him this story and then now the baker's telling this story it's all been one story this whole time and i thought yeah that just culminated in that song as just like a very powerful like the generations are all there but it's the children have listened and they're the ones telling the story from the start and i cannot picture that being as impactful really any other way i'm not saying it can't or wouldn't but this i think handled it very strongly yeah i mean like i will say for me, um, I didn't mind this choice of splitting the role. I mean, I was very much more used to the double cast with um, Tom. What's his last name, Mariana, who played the narrator? Uh, Tom. Rich. Pardon? Aldrich. 
yes, Aldrich playing the narrator because he had such a definitive image in my mind of what the narrator should be as this kind of professor quirky guy telling this story. Um, but I mean, I think what they did, these directors did, did a pretty solid job of nailing the bookends because at the beginning of the show, I don't know if anybody caught that, but you hear the baker as the father saying, I hate you, get out in kind of an augmented echo voice. And then the kid appears on stage. So you get a little bit of their fight before the show starts. And then at the end, he comes back. So I think there was some nice bookending there. I mean, the fact that they also got more lines in about parents and children. So like Sondheim's lines about, um, what do you leave to your child uh, when you're dead? Only whatever you put in its head. Things that your father and mother have said, which were left to them to careful what you say. So the fact that the directors went back into the cut Sondheim lyrics and brought more of those parent and child motifs and lines, I think worked. I think this is the only way you could do it, which is where you have like a young, like early teenager or like just on the cusp of teenager child doing the story. But for me personally, I do like the narrator and mysterious man being one and the same. I think there is something just joyfully fun about that and like, one of my best laughs, I remember watching this for the first time in the 89 version is when the narrator's doing his line of when they're talking about the giant and they're trying to figure out who they're going to give to the giant. He does that. Now these characters don't like fully, I never fully had to comprehend this type of thing. And he's going on a very professor academic viewpoint of these characters and slowly you just see all of the cast just turning their heads slowly but surely acknowledging him. Like that got me the first time. I almost died laughing that it's like just that it's so funny the way the way that is blocked where it's somebody like that. And also there's just some magic in the fact that throughout the entire piece, the narrator and mysterious men are jumping back and forth. Like the fact that in the death of the mysterious man, like literally two seconds later, he's back in his mysterious like narrator suit that he goes from. Because like in the original production, it's a full wig costume swap that he does. And there's magic in that, that I still don't know how they did that quick change. Like, it's just so fast. It's just so impressive. So I do think there's some magic in that character of the narrator, Mysterious Man, when they're sharing the role. Because as an audience, you're never quite fully sure. Once again, do they, like, do they know what's going on in the story? Do they not? Like, do they not know? Like, does the witch know? Like, I think there's just so much more mystery and question. And you still get that cyclical nature told out uh, without the child. Uh, and so I think there are good and pros and cons to both versions. I think as a director, you have to make the choice once again of which version you go with. Because now there are versions that Sondheim has done and given to people where you can split the role. I remember one local production did it where they did split the role, but they made them two like roughly middle-aged men yeah. like doing both parts. And I was kind of like, well, that's kind of boring. Yeah, I think if and you're going to make them both middle-aged men, you might as well combine them. I like yeah. that the narrator is the child here because yeah. it's not just that children will listen. It's not just a promise for the future. The child has already listened and it's their yes. version of the story we're hearing. Yeah. And that's what I thought made it really work. All right, let's get into the next question because I'm sure there's going to be a lot to unpack here too. So do we feel that the sexual politics of this musical still resonate today? Jill. As a former Little Red, whose storyline is most affected by uh, the sexuality and sexual politics of the piece, has a whole song dedicated to it. What do you think? It's funny because this production was done in 2010, which Mm -hmm. when I think of like 20, the teens of the 20s, 
it's not that far away, but to see how society has like arguably exponentially grown in like technology and like social conversation and stuff from in a decade, I mean, it's funny because you see that in like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. They are their own thing, but when you're living it, you don't really think, but it is different. Like mm-hmm. to me, when we watch, and this has happened with other reviews we've done, when we watch productions that are done in like 2012 or 2010 or even 2008, right? It's amazing to me how society was so different or like um, mm-hmm. approached things differently or showed things or didn't show things versus what we are dealing with now. Um, and so what I'll say to that is me personally, it was, it was very, it was very, interesting watching the sexual innuendos and dialogue of this piece mm-hmm. from a 2021 gla- lens mm-hmm. um because it was like again i it was done safely you could see mm-hmm. but it was just like whoa why are they why are they showing why are they showing it that way um mm-hmm. because i i think now i would argue like when those that is is sort of used in theater as like a plot point or a plot driving uh, like element. Um, it really is like talk about dramatur- drama like dramatical due diligence. Like it really mm-hmm. is like we are doing it this way for this reason. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that it, it it is a safety thing, and part of that is like a you're talking about it in a way or you're showing it in a way that is like universal and safe and packing a punch to what what the messaging is supposed to mean, right? You're kind of ticking more boxes. But like a lot of the times in this production, things were like messy, but messy as in like how they were staged, how like sexuality was staged was messy, but also like it didn't feed into what the plot was doing. And again, this talks back in like this explosive starkness um, it made me a little bit, like, alarmed or, like, oh, my goodness. Like, we're talking about the wolf eating Little Red and that is shown in a certain way that I would have never seen shown that way. Um, which is fine. It just didn't fit in with – so I feel like some people would, would red flag some of the moments in this piece of just, like, being, like, uh, let's not do it that way. Um, but it's interesting because it, the, the question meaning like, does it resonate with us today? Um, as we've talked about, like as much as things are done on stage in like a sexual or physical way Mm -hmm. for a reason with the exponential growth of things, we can also talk about how children today arguably are matured and exposed to things way earlier than all of us sitting here doing this panel, for instance. Like, the innocence of children has knocked down even far, even, like, younger, right? Unfortunately, due to media exposure, due to um, more open conversation, and there's, like, pros and cons to that for sure. But, um, so, in a way it resonates, but not, not within this story if that makes sense like because it's it's like people people are seeing these things this is happening in everyday life um but it just seemed very out of place like in this production um that's 
that's kind of what how I'll answer with that in a very rambly way. But Mariana, um, <laughs> I right, I had sort of similar questions about the question, like. Are, do the sexual politics of the show still resonate with us today? I'm like, are there not still sexual politics today? <laughs> right. Sexual politics resonate. Mm-hmm. Hey. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I, I agree. I sort of what... Um, right, I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about the relationship between... Um, performance of sexual maturity and actual emotional maturity. Because I think like part of the terror of being like going through puberty is like your body can't contain all of the feelings that it has. And it and it and you don't and because of the way that even in those open conversations, I feel like about, about, about sexuality, about intimacy, about all of these things, um, there's still like such a struggle with language and vocabulary to describe what's happening to you. You might know that you want to experience something, but, but maybe, but, but what even is that thing? I don't even know. I know that it's probably scary and invasive and I don't even know what that is, but I want it, but should I want it? Because I'm being told all these different things. Mm-hmm. All to say, I would agree that the um, the overt performance of sexual confidence I find a bit confusing, mm-hmm. given the real fear and confusion yeah. of these characters. And I think, um, especially with Jack and Little Red, Jack might fixate on the giant breast, but to not, but I, and, and but but they also say I know things now that I never knew before. I know things. What even are the things? They don't even. They can't even mm-hmm. say what those things are. Yeah. And so um, there's the performance of knowing. I think is very knowing something and not knowing what it is is very different than I know things now and I um, I know things now. You know. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I just, yeah, those are just sort of questions questions I have. And, and right, I think it's all part of a, a bigger conversation that societally we need to have about, like, we need to get, or I'm of the belief that we need to normalize conversations about sexuality and intimacy from much younger. And we should mm-hmm. have knowledge yeah. that is stigmatized and we should do all these things. And that there isn't just one kind of intimacy. There are a lot of different kinds of intimacy. It doesn't just have to be sexual. There are different kinds yeah. of, there's all this, you know, we should have those conversations and that's not to take away from, let's have a sexually empowered little red, let's do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what the show, what the, what the music and what the words and what the story is doing is it's, I know things now, very powerful things. There's not even, what is it? So to, yeah. to pack it down so concretely to just sex feels, um, um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if that's what the story actually Just a tiny caveat to that too. It's really small, but, um, yeah, like I was confused, like, why are we getting, so you talked about like knowing sexuality, like all, like 
we're getting the showing of sexuality from the characters like Red and Jack, which we talked about them being like a lower tier, like a younger tier. So I was confused, like why aren't we seeing that in the more adult characters as well or in a certain way? Like even the affair that the baker's wife has with Prince Charming, we don't see any sexuality that happens there. We just see them kind of coming out of of their romp in the woods. Um but then the way they stage like little red stuff, like we see some stuff that might have been done to her or is being mm-hmm. done to her. And I was a little bit uncomfortable with that dissonance between the showing of sexuality in only that mm-hmm. tier of characters versus not in another. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And sorry, one, one last thing. I know I'm talking a lot, but I think no, there's jump in. I think there's a really interesting question to be had about consent, mm-hmm. especially with little red. Because, like, the wolf is literally a predator. Yeah. So it's one thing to, if this is a consensual encounter and Little Red's enjoying it, okay, then that's that's definitely one story that we're telling. And maybe I know things now is, is, is she had this experience and she, she, she wanted this experience and, and great, good, um, let's have <laughs> more consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ryan. What are your yeah, thoughts? Like Considering I, this was a question you came up with. This is I? your question. We wrote these questions like four months ago. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't recall uh, what the thinking behind this question was, and I don't really know how much more there even is to add after everything both of you have said. Something that like is going through my mind as we have this conversation and kind of zeroing in on Little Red and the Wolf as this sort of case study for a lot of the. Like, there's a lot of horny energies, certainly, in this production, but I think just it's inherent to the text as a whole. But, like, mm-hmm. um, but just kind of zeroing in on those characters, Mac, it reminds me of a conversation we had, like, a long while ago, but kept coming back to about how you wanted to, whether you wanted to direct it yourself or it's just something you wanted to see, but you wanted to do a very contemporary, present-day setting production of Into the Woods. That, oh, Yes. Where you said like, oh yeah, the wolf should be like a creepy guy in a van, and I, I no, kind not, of, I never said creepy guy in a van. Okay, something to that effect. <laughs> a guy in a park, and and, and if Little Red's sure. dressed in her everyday school uniform, and he's sitting there ogling her on a park bench. That's something very common, which is horrible, horrible that these types of things get sexualized, which should not be sexualized. But there are people mm-hmm. in the world who do, and I think there's yeah. something about the wolf and just the way his. The way the way you can once again there's that con- yeah I have a concept on that that I okay well festering and I know Ryan doesn't like the concept well and why I recoil from that concept mm-hmm. isn't because I think it's an invalid reading of mm-hmm. the text I always just think it's too simplistic a reading of the text and because mm-hmm. to me that's I think yeah it is about that like it is about male predators and young women and like and this kind of weird like consent like who you know, Mariana, you've been talking about. And I think this kind of, I think, yeah, it's very clearly there. This isn't, you know, this isn't just a straightforward production of, hey, look at all these fairy tales that we're uh, reviving. Like this is very specifically a 1980s contemporary vision of that, that is put in the setting of fairy tales. Because, And like, I think what, Mac, your vision of that production, like it, it neuters the metaphor in a way it's like to me it calls to mind like okay we're doing a stage adaptation of animal farm by george orwell 
But instead of pigs, what if they're communists from Soviet Russia, man? Isn't doesn't that make you think like it's <laughs> yes, it's already an allegory for that. So why bother? <laughs> like, just do the pigs. <laughs> so like, uh, and that's I cut us. So I think like, I, I, it's not a good answer to the question, like as phrased here. But I think like, I don't know if productions really need to lean into like the 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 sexual politic element and well, what does this mean today post me too post discussions open discussions of rape culture like I I, I kind of do think you know it's there and it's sadly still resonant and maybe for different reasons than it was then but you can kind of I think just let the text speak for itself and you know your mileage will vary how much you want to play it up like this production certainly played up the the creepiness of the wolf I think which kind of made it on one hand harder to see just wait till you watch the 89 version ryan okay the wolf like, costume there is very sexual the fact that you had to reduce his um uh, appendage because in the original production it was too distracting so yeah i can see that but like yeah i think that it just sort of i think with the way that Sondheim and Lapine wrote this play it just comes with the territory and I even if you do like a very intending to be child-friendly version where oh hey it's just fun fairy tales I think you know it's some elements are just going to be hard to miss regardless of how innocent you are to it mm -hmm. uh, yeah. th that's my kind of just thoughts about like as in lieu of a good answer yes well well, I mean, I still have that idea of festering, so... Who yeah, knows, right? I just don't know what the see. point is. It's like the dumb animal farm premise that I just described. Uh, okay. <laughs> Why well, bother? Once again, <laughs> leave it to me. Leave it to me. Who knows? Um, anyway, <clears throat> so, uh, for me, I go, uh, yes, this piece still has a lot of sexual politics that resonate today. Just, and I think what Lapine and Sondheim did really well when they were adapting all these fairy tales is, if you read those original fairy tales... There's a lot of sexual politics in them that Sondheim and Lapine then brought into uh, the stories, like as well. So they so, so they were they they brought these kind of unfortunately some of these timeless elements of the story, like uh, a, 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 a sexualization of Little Red. If you go back and read the original fairy tale interpretations, that's me something that's always been in those fairy tales. Uh, the fact that the princes are fetishizing these women throughout the piece, like. There's so much also like we talked about the Ryan, you brought up the fact that the baker's wife, she's really identified as uh, her husband and by her gender. So like, what does that say that like, there's still a lot of women uh, in the workplace who are just identified by either their job or by somebody else. Like, like she doesn't even get a name. So I think there's a lot of different sexual gender politics that this piece brings up and that, and that as a cast and as a director, you got to do some work on this piece, because they're because Sondheim and Lapine give you a lot to dig into with this. Like, let's say you you have, you have a choice of how sexual you want the wolf to be. Do you literally want like in just like in the Inappropriate, where there's literally a dangling appendage, very visible, <laughs> on stage, or do you want it to be a little bit more subtle in the blocking of what they do with Little Red on the swing or Little Red kind of flopping around on the bed with the wolf? Like different ways you can interpret it, and I think and I think what they're and I think what the conversations that come up from that are still very resonant. And what Sondheim gave you is once again, Sondheim being the brilliant, to be honest, I think he is the Shakespeare musical theater. Um, I think what he gave you is just so much to digest and to interpret and to talk about. I think very interesting. And I think going forward this production, you, 
Like you definitely need to have an intimacy coach mm-hmm. brought on to the team because there is a lot of stuff in here that I was like, Ooh, yeah, definitely. I don't think there was one back in 2010 when this was done, but now you would definitely need to have an intimacy coach. Well, we can't there. speak to the behind the scenes going on to this production. Maybe there was one, maybe there wasn't. It's more just for the According safety to the of credits, the actors. There wasn't one. Mm-hmm. Often they go uncredited though. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, but either way, yes, Which I that's do think a problem in itself, that, that is a, yeah. that is a problem itself, but it doesn't mean that they didn't have one in the process here. I don't know. We can't really speak to that. Can't, uh. yeah. yeah, but either way, yes, I do think the sexual politics still resonate today. And Sondheim and Lapine have created this element of adaptation where they've just brought these sexual politics that were in the original fairy tale and they've brought them into, as Ryan said, the 1980s modern lens of their yeah. interpretation of, 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 of those elements of the story. Because those original fairy tales are very sexual. To briefly shout out, just because you're Mm -hmm. bringing back the the 80s trope, and Mm -hmm. one thing I like about this production, (laughs) because I think it fed into the 80s vibe, um, and as someone who I'm usually cast as the avant-garde princess, if I'm cast as a princess at all, Mm -hmm. I love the different uh, viewpoints we get of Cinderella and Rapunzel. I yes. like that we get to see them grungy. I like that they have the steampunky vibes mm-hmm. in their evolution. We see the off-the-shoulder dress, and mm-hmm. we, you know, that that I I as like a modern woman like seeing. So again, I think this production like you can afford to do that without it like muddying the the piece, right? Or even like them in their own pieces, like in their own Rapunzel, in their own Cinderella. Um, I like that. We, and that, and then once again, Jack's mother's tool belt. Like, you know what I mean? There was just like elements of, of breaking down the, the like ingenue, perfect woman mm-hmm. viewpoint, right? Um, through this production of, of women. So that was, yeah, that's just like a tiny little shout out. Yeah. Yes. Well, speaking of Rapunzel, let's dive into her because she often gets overlooked. <laughs> when we when we when when you do into the woods, so is Rapunzel a fully developed character, or merely a plot device in other characters' stories? Mariana, as your mom was in the original production, I don't know if she's ever mentioned if Rapunzel had a bigger story track than what she has in the version now. Because like obviously there was the cut song that got brought back, like that was the one big element that I know was left in the original. Mm, yeah. Um... Right. Other than that, other than the addition of our little world, yeah. I don't think of anything um, from the original. But but I actually I don't know. I should I'll I'll ask and I'll follow. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting when you ask that question. I, I was sort of thinking of well, she was stolen as a. I mean, this might be going way mm-hmm. too actor brain sort of. How would I justify my performance as Rapunzel? Well, like the rich, the rich. The witch raised her mm-hmm. to what she is. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really interesting in this one seeing a resentment really early on. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's interesting if you think about the witch having raised Rapunzel to be this perfect little little princess in a tower mm-hmm. who only, you know, right, is obsessed with her hair because what else would you be obsessed with having been raised by this parent who keeps telling you to obsess over these things mm-hmm. um, it's interesting I never really thought about that before as a as perhaps a, a justification for how she's been portrayed before as perhaps a 
on the face of it, maybe a shallow um, mm-hmm. sort of person. This, this production made me sort of think, oh, well, maybe the reason why we could justify Rapunzel as seeming more like a plot device before is because that's what the witch made her. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. guilt is that not only was she trying to protect Rapunzel, but she actively, the raising of Rapunzel made Rapunzel not ready for the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, and so then I have questions. So then I have more questions, right? So if she was resentful before and always wanted to get away and is just more and more, you know, falls into, into the rut that we see her in, um, where does that, where does that start if she was resenting the witch before she escaped? Mm-hmm. Um, right. If she was this pretty little princess because that's all her mom made her to be. And then she went out into the world and really wasn't ready. There's a question of parenting there. Um, and I yeah, so now I'm, it's interesting. I would never really have thought to ask those questions before. I would have just sort of thought, ah, Rapunzel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, to, to piggyback off that a little bit, like something that certainly struck me while watching it is the team behind the movie Tangled certainly seems to have taken a lot of cues from the Rapunzel-Witch relationship mm-hmm. as particularly like Dan Fogelman of This Is Us and Galavant fame wrote the screenplay or co-wrote the screenplay for Tangled. And I definitely, I feel like, yeah, I see uh, a lineage of thought from Sondheim to the disney version, which is interesting how this play seems so hell-bent on rejecting the disney of these fairy tale characters, as we've talked about with the sexual politics just a moment ago, but kind of getting the original sort of essence of the source back in there. Fun um, fact, Mother Gothel's voice actress, uh, um, Donna Murphy, played the witch in Central Park. That is a fun fact. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like I, what I, what I kind of I've always respected about the movie Tangled is just how it really like latches onto this mother daughter, like horrible sort of domestic abuse kind of you know, uh, toxic relationship, uh, as as the the beating heart of the story and what kind of Rapunzel's arc has to be overcoming that. Mm-hmm. And now, if this did in fact inspire that, I kind of feel like. Sondheim and co did Rapunzel dirty a little bit here it was kind of I thought and just in terms of like not that she doesn't get her own kind of liberation but just that the story sort of forgets about her and her branch kind of fizzles out (laughs) and I think it's kind of just a consequence of there's too many goddamn characters in this story (laughs) like that they they don't necessarily all get to have complete full-fleshed arcs I, I like I understand that yeah it is interesting the way she sort of she Rapunzel functions as this plot device early on but i would have liked to see that pay off with more of like a not necessarily a redemption arc but with like a a self-actualization arc for her that you know she does not seem happy by the end of it like and you know that she commits suicide well yeah yeah the giant yes well yeah so very clearly isn't happy but like uh duh but but yeah like it it just yeah i would have liked to see hashtag justice for rapunzel in this which but then hey we get a disney movie down the line that gives her that so that's the thing about these public domain characters there's always going to be someone else to pick up the baton and create a new version that maybe fixes places where others have erred or intentionally or not jill that's just funny because I was supposed to play Rapunzel in a panto right before the pandemic hit. So that's just funny you saying like someone else pick up the torch and try to 
try to make her more agency and yeah, she's mm. still she's still here. We never we never got to hit the stage with her yet, but it was yeah, it was mm. super cool having the lens of Rapunzel in this piece and then like a tangled um and then like the fairy tale of and then her being in 2020 at the time mm. being like, "Who who is Rapunzel today?" Mm-hmm. Um so that's a little tangent, but um mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so in in something that's fascinating to me because I I get like with this piece like we kind of need to know how everyone is connected right because they're all going into the woods it's all like the same woods um like to me it's like Rapunzel we find out very early on that Rapunzel is the baker's sister yep and like that she was that the she was basically used as transaction right for the Mm -hmm. for the witch um yeah and that's all we ever I would argue, like, all we ever really see, like, she very much is, like, um, a plot device. Because I think she was born into that. Like, that's kind of what mm-hmm. she became. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's cool watching. Ha- she does have chunks of the piece where it is just focused on her. Because we're almost watching, like, a failed narrative. Like, mm-hmm. she's trying her darndest to get an arc. But something always comes in her way. Um, and she literally has the burden of like a whole head of hair that people, she's been like tugged and pulled, pulled, which way, Mm -hmm. like you can, you know, that has several meanings. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we find it, it is like a failed, a failed narrative. And then if we are to talk about like, so that going back to, she's the sibling of the baker and this is the baker's story, right? Mm -hmm. This is the story of the baker. So we see that sibling get that, but then we, that's. So it's like success and failure. And it's like, but it's it's interesting. You don't really, unless you pick that up in the exposition that they're siblings, there isn't really anything in the story that brings them together by happenstance or like bring, like, like on the nose peppering the fact that they are siblings. Um, it's a forgotten element of the story. Like, yeah, and so it's, and, but it's then a throwaway like, line. But I, like, do they but even I think, have a scene together? I'm trying no, to remember. No, like, they do yeah, not. Like the fact and that then their it's siblings like, are sorry, just sorry, they have, sorry, her suicide scene. They are in the same space, but sure, they never but talk they don't to interact. Each other. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. and and it's interesting. It's like, it's like I'm, I would, I would love to know if that was done on purpose. Like, if we are supposed to get this like success story mm-hmm. and this failure story, and then I was always like thrown for a loop why like she had twins. Like, That's from the original. You know. Right, but uh, then, but then I'm like, in this, in this lens, like it's interesting to me. I'm like, here, here it is, like the baker's wife and the baker, like their whole purpose of this journey is because they cannot have a child, mm-hmm. and they end up having a child, and yet, like, and then she's dealt the life she's living, living, and she's given an abundance of children, arguably, and cannot provide for them. Mm-hmm. So there's again this like Venn diagram mm-hmm. of of like the baker and Rapunzel. Like, I just I'm always drawn to trying to pave mm. out Rapunzel with the baker or the baker with mm. Rapunzel. Because again, we are told that they are siblings. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that we're told that there's gotta be a reason for that. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. does add in that other, it, it loops things around, mm-hmm. right? That brings in the witch, which is next door to the baker who meets mm-hmm. this, like, yeah. but it, yeah, that's how, that would be a totally another mm-hmm. conversation or like an essay mm-hmm. written of like Rapunzel and the baker and what does it mean? A study um, of duality. Sure, exactly. Ooh. So I, I do think she is a plot device, but she tries mm-hmm. her darndest to create her own story and it just doesn't mm-hmm. yeah. doesn't mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so that, uh, that's why I've always wondered about Rapunzel. She's always been a fascinating character to me, which is why the fact that we have somebody like Mariana who's got all this treasure trove of knowledge with her mom that I was like, oh, definitely need to talk to her mom at some point and see what happened behind this. Because like, this show was rewritten heavily through, through, like, through, through out-of-town trials. Like, Sontime and Lapine really ratcheted and refined the story. Like, the fact that there was supposed to be Three Little Pigs, Apparently, Rumpelstiltskin was supposed to show up at what point? Um, Many characters. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the thing of like, and, and, I, and I think that's what happens with Rapunzel is she is, and, I, and that's why I've always wondered like, did Sondheim intend for there to be a song for Rapunzel in Act Two, where like, because she has that great monologue about like, you locked me in a tower with nobody, then you took away my prince and banished me to a desert where I had nobody. Oh, and then I bore twins. Like the fact that like, it, it's, it feels like you could put a song in there where she is really telling the witch off. But it's about like how, cause she says one of the tragic lines is because of the way you treated me, I can never be happy. Like, I think that's just setting up a song right there and it just wasn't a song. So I, unfortunately I think Rapunzel is first of all, just uh, unfortunately a victim of plot timing. Like just, you got, as Ryan said, there's so many characters to get through. And if your main focus is the baker and his wife and his journey and their, sorry, their journey, somebody's got to give somewhere along the way. And I think well, Rapunzel yeah. fell into that plot trap for some time. We're like, they're like, okay, we need a character with hair as yellow as gold. Also, there needs to be a witch in the story. So either it's going to be Sleeping Beauty or it's going to be Rapunzel because those are the two kind of blonde famous princesses we got. Okay, we'll go with Rapunzel because you got something there with her. And she's got a prince and like, even though like, so like, I think it, it was just kind of like, who do we have in the fairy tale game so, that we can use? But mind you, that being said, this production tried to flesh her out more, giving, get, bringing back the song, Our Little World, some of her interactions with the witch, like the fact that after the witch fails to cast her spell, Rapunzel cackles and is like giddy at the fact that now she can get away from her mom because her mom's magic has been taken away. So she's, mm -hmm. she, she actually can't escape from... Like from there, and I and I mean I do love the fact that Lapine and Sontime did kill her off. I do think that is something that is really drives home the point of we forget about happily ever after, and all the stuff that she has gone through would have some type of traumatic impact on her life. Like, mm -hmm. and so the fact that she is somebody who chooses to not stay in the woods, she actively chooses to run in front of the giant and. Yeah, see, I would have preferred Watched. if she came to some kind of self-actualization instead of that, because, like, what message does that send that if you go through all this trauma, there's nothing left in life for you? I, I like, think I, it's the honest portrayal of some people are able to get through the woods and, 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 um, and um, come forward with their trauma and move forward in life with, uh, with that, and some people can't. Unfortunately, there are some people in the world who, ha who face trauma and sadly... Um, can't move forward in the woods. Sometimes, yeah, but they... we can use stories to sort of make a more healthy roadmap of how someone can get out of those woods, despite but everything. I, I think, I think, with that, that's what happens when Cinderella, Little Red Jack, and the Baker mm -hmm. all decide to band together. Yes, I, I would, I would, I would maybe argue that they wouldn't have had the been able to get out of the woods or get out of mm. the situation by themselves but yeah. they turned to each other and they knew as a mm. unit that they could so and i think I, I like that interpretation a lot but my my 
two thoughts about that is one couldn't Rapunzel have been part of that coalition and maybe they could have helped her out too. And if not, well, I think it's just too many characters. It's like, too many well, characters. It's, it's also, she wasn't written in the same scene as these characters. Well, but too, right? again, so. we, she could have been like, uh, then right. this is just part of the dramaturgy of it all. And, and like, I, it, to me, if she was, set up as a clearer foil to those characters and like through the doubling of like the duality with her and the baker like if things had been done in the plotting of it to make it clear that this is set up as a contrast to this Mm -hmm. but they almost feel like they're on two very separate trajectories that never quite speak to each other well yeah and something that's even darker to think of like if you know we've talked about like children will listen or Mm -hmm. children must listen right because even that to me that that is like a moral of the story or it can be like a thesis statement for Mm -hmm. this piece. But like we talked about, the same melodies are used in this piece but different lyrics. Mm -hmm. That same melody is troped throughout but different like moods Mm -hmm. because you have like the children will listen and then you have like the children must listen, right? There's the starkness, there's the shift. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think that the witch sings these songs and – Rapunzel is who these songs are about. Like she's using Rapunzel mm-hmm. as the case study. Yeah. Well, and the so first time again, the song appears just, is after makes, she dies. It makes me want to go into a deeper dive of Rapunzel because if she is the cat, like the catalyst for one of the morals or thesis of this piece, mm-hmm. and then we see her story so tragically unfold. Again, I'm sort of thinking of the piece of like it's. Act one, you could watch as just a magical fairy tale and you could arguably leave after act one and be fine. But then shit hits the fan in act two and literally hue-wise, it gets darker. Mm -hmm. And it's like that to me would be so interesting to like just divulge even more into that character because like again, like Mm -hmm. that the children, she is the child in that situation. Mm -hmm. Like, right? We don't know Mm -hmm. if the witch had any other children that she's kind of using that as the catalyst for those songs um anyways that's getting we're getting more like philosophically into the brain of rapunzel but it would just be interesting to to comb through more yeah yeah i definitely think sometime on the pine set up a very interesting character with like she is the baker's sister there's she the fact she does have twins in the desert like there's a lot of great things there i just think once again and i think if we talk to sondheim you probably go this show is already two and a half hours, almost three. <laughs> I can't give everybody their full like story. Sometimes some characters just need to be a plot device to get us to the next plot point while still giving them a little bit of something. But yeah, it's she's a fascinating character. She's someone who I've always walked away from this music with going, you are overlooked uh, mm-hmm. as a character because she doesn't get a big song like, like Cinderella, Jack, or Little Red do. She's someone who is always around other characters who sing big songs but never does she get her own. And all of, all of the time her plot points are rushed through where it's like, oh, and by the way, Rapunzel's walking through the desert. She had twins and oh, she cried on her prince. And oh, look, his sight came back. Surprise, happy ending. Um, or like, or, or the fact that like she has to react to the song, um, Stay With Me. And she doesn't actually get to say anything in that song. Um, and then like in act two, it's like, all of a sudden she's now in a downward spiral and she's like, oh, well, because of this, this, and this, this happened. And the next time we see her, she's running into the giant. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I think there was plot points there. I, I'd be very interested to talk to Sondheim and her mom, Mariana, just to see what the process in, in the rehearsal room was like. Because I'd be very interested to see what happened what, what happened with Rapunzel there. And if she was always just intended to be a plot device or if they had had 
bigger ambitions that just never unfortunately fully were able to come to fruition so interesting well i mean we have gone on a deep dive journey in in the woods here uh but before we all leave the woods for a time uh let's all give our sign offs jill where can people find and follow you in your antics Yes, um, folks can find me on Instagram. My artist Instagram account is jillian.robinson96. Um, I am, as I mentioned in a previous review I was in, I'm still a production manager and head of stage management for a digital restoration series. So we are going to be working on Venice Preserved as our next production mm-hmm. for that, and that's going to start next week. So keep your eyes peeled for any Zoom performance or uh, advertisement due to that or with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still trying to keep up with doing some singing and, uh, all that jazz. So just visit my page if you'd like to learn about some upcoming theater or hear some tunes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mariana, where can people find and follow you? Um, so I'm actually taking a bit of a social media break, um, moment. So holding off on, on sharing my, my social accounts. Um, but I'm still, I'm in my third year of my graduate MFA program. One more year to go. Um, so catch me May 2022 as a, full, as a fully formed person. <laughs> Wonderful. Ryan, give us your classic Ryan Barakovich send-off. <laughs> I'm not on, I don't know why this is so classic. I'm not active on social media, so don't bother trying to find me. Uh, you could just send all that love to Cup of Hemlock Theater. Uh, which is, hey, that's where you're watching the show right now. Like, share, and subscribe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sign up for a sonnet from the link in the de- in the description of this video. Hey, do you like sonnets? Shakespeare sonnets specifically? Sign up for one. Film yourself recording it, and we'll share it on this here very YouTube channel where you're presumably watching this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Bad plug. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't as witty as your last one but we'll take it uh, you're running out of steam for wit <laughs> yeah fair enough um yeah uh so yeah you can find follow me at Mackenzie horner on all social media platforms if you didn't get enough into the woods chat you can actually go over to my other podcast before the downbeat where our season three opening episode was all about into the woods where we got all into the production history of the songs a little bit deeper so you can do that um or, and you also can find all other great Sondheim episodes we've done, including Sweeney Todd, Merrily Roll on Company. Uh, not sure if we'll have another one by the time this episode comes out. Probably not. So yeah, just go on and check all those great Sondheim episodes out. Uh, and yeah, just stay tuned. If you haven't subscribed to this Cup of Hemlock podcast, do that. You can now take us on the go, uh, which is lots of fun. Uh, and other than that, everybody, we thank you so much for joining us on this journey of into the woods and out of the woods and home before dark. So thank you all. (laughs) I wish. Bye.